Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Hello. So, I collect rocks. I don't know if you did any. I don't know if you knew that about me, but I collect rocks. Um, you know, I've always been so just inspired by the story of the Israelites when they created um, by God's command, but took rocks from the Jordan River when they passed through the river and collected rocks, and they used rocks as monuments um, to. And they used them for their families. So when they would be journeying and their kids would say, what's that rock mound over there? Then they would say, oh, well, actually, what that rock mound is is God did this and this and this in our lives. And so I have taken it upon myself to collect rocks throughout my life as my own personal monument, and it sits in my living room. And these are the things that I hold on to. These are monuments of of where I've been and where God has brought me from. This represents a church that I served at and my very first church where I sort of cut my teeth in ministry and all the growing. And this represents my journey to summit at the very beginning. It's from Jasper on my way to, um, to summit. And so I've got a bunch of, I've got a summit one in here from when I was this is my summit one. I took this when I graduated. This is my summit rock. And I've got these rocks in my life. And um, what's this one from? Oh, yeah. This one. Okay. Hang on to that one because I got a story about that. Okay. So um, my very first year, well, first, I want to tell you this. So I had the opportunity about seven or eight, seven years ago, doesn't matter. I had a few uh, opportunity to go to Israel, and uh, it was remarkable. And if ever you get an, a chance to go, go. Figure out how you get the money and do it, because it has changed my life. And so I'm standing on the Mount of Olives, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm standing on the Mount of Olives. And I'm looking at the city of Jerusalem, thinking, oh my gosh, that's the city of Jerusalem. This is remarkable. And I thought, I need a rock. <laughs> and so here I am. I'm in an, an olive, like, orchard. And I just sort of, like, trail behind everybody, and I just take a rock. Because, like, you actually can't take, like, natural matter <laughs> out of a country. Yeah. And um, Israel is a bit of a stickler when it comes to the rules of things. Um, and so... Uh, I ended up being able to smuggle it through, through customs and such. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yikes. It was super scary, actually. Um, but I got it. And actually, that rock is in Ontario because... <laughs> Thanks, Raiden. Um, a good one. <laughs> So that rock is in Ontario because I thought, oh my goodness, I really, really want a rock from the Mount of Olives, but then I gave it to my brother, Glenn. And so it's with him. And uh, because Glenn and I collect rocks. Right? That's what best friends do. And so he has my Mount of Olives rock. Now, I have had another opportunity other experience of rocks and planes. So I don't know if this is a normal thing for you to have experiences of rocks and planes, but I have had a few experiences with rocks and planes. And my experience from like Tel Aviv to Canada was a pretty like fine experience with a rock and plane. However, I had a significantly different experience with a rock and a plane from the Abbotsford Airport. So <laughs> yeah. So in my very first year at Summit, I went to Victoria for Thanksgiving with some friends of mine. And I was so amazed. I was in, Vic I was in Victoria. The ocean. I'd never been to the ocean before. It was so exciting. And I was like, I need a rock from here. And then, um, and so I was like looking at a dead jellyfish and thinking, I need a rock to remember this dead jellyfish. So I took a rock for me. That's this one. And then I took a rock for Glenn. Right? Yeah. 
And it was like a round one, but the size of this one. I know. So then I, I was going to um, a friend of mine. She was getting married, and I was in her wedding. And for the, for the women that, that were at the ladies' retreat, you know, I don't particularly love being in weddings. But um, I was going. And don't tell my friend this. It was the worst wedding to be a part of. I love her to bits, but her wedding was brutal. Anyways, <laughs> you don't know her. You don't know her. I love her. We, are, we have a wonderful friendship. I'd tell her that to her face. Anyways, so I take this. I don't know why I shared that. So I take this rock. Um, I take this rock, and, I, and I'm just going for the weekend. And so I pack it in um, my, I just take a carry-on. So I pack it in the carry-on, and, uh, and so I'm like, do-do-do-do-do, going through the Abbotsford Airport, and I put my bag on the little rolly thing, and it goes through a little x-ray system. I know it's not our x-ray, but, you know, uh, it goes through an x-ray thing. And so then the gentleman behind the screen says, excuse me, ma'am, you have an undescript item in your bag. Um, can I open your bag? And I said, oh, yeah. He's like, yeah, do you know what this thing might be? And I said, Oh, yeah, it's a rock. And he says, well, why on earth would you have a rock in your bag? I said, well, I went to Victoria for the very first time, and I wanted to get my brother a souvenir for when, going, when I went to Victoria, and so I'm bringing this rock back for him. And he was like, ma'am, don't you realize that this is dangerous? And I was like, but it's just a rock. Like, and he says, what's stopping you from taking that rock out of your bag and throwing it to one of those windows, thus changing, thus breaking the window, changing the air pressure in the plane and taking the entire plane down? This is what he said to me. I was like, but sir, I would never do that. <laughs> Like, I would never throw a rock at a window to take a plane down. <laughs> and there is, like, a great deal of tension that is rising up within me. I'm quite stressed at this moment because he's essentially, potentially calling me a terrorist. And, and I'm like, um, I, it's just a souvenir. And he says, well, you either... And he's very stern about it. You either have to go back to the service desk and check this bag, or you're going to have to leave this rock. And I was like, well, you can have it. Like, <laughs> you can have the rock instead. I don't, it's just a rock. I don't. <laughs> and he's like, are you sure? Are you sure you're giving this rock to me? I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> and... <laughs> And there's, like, such tension. And I, like, leave the rock behind and take my carry-on bag. And I was like, what on earth just happened? Like, this is Abbotsford. I'm going from Abbotsford to Kitchener. This is insane. Ugh. But it was crazy. Here I just thought I was just going to go on an airplane. But once a rock, once a stone came into, the, into play, a great deal of tension arose in the situation. And so that's where we find ourselves tonight with our text. And so I'd like for us to go to John chapter 8, verse 1. John chapter 8, verse 1. Well, in verse 53 of 7, it starts with, that each went in his own town, own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again at the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, the, in the law of Moses uh, commands us to stone such a woman, now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a bias for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, 
If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave your life of sin. Well, Jesus, we thank you for this tense situation in which you revealed yourself. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us tonight through this text again. And would we hear, Holy Spirit, what you would have for us to hear? I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. So this text is full of tension. Full of tension. It's about sex. It's about lawlessness. It's about righteousness. It's about judgment. It's about entrapment. It's about manipulation. It is a very tense situation. But before we get into the tenseness inside the text, we actually have to deal with the tension that is around the text. See, this text holds a great deal of theological tension. Now, the tension begins with some awkwardness of where this text is placed in John. So we see in chapter 7, Jesus is speaking to a crowd from verses 37 to 39. And then in chapter 8, in chapter 12, after this text, Jesus again is speaking to a crowd. But in this text, from chapter 7, verse 53, to 8 to 11, Jesus has left the crowd, gone home, or gone to rest. Most likely, he's gone to rest, commentators say, um, with like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, potentially. And, um, and so now he's come back to the temple. And so there's this like awkwardness of what's actually happening here. And the language that's used in this text is unlike John's typical language that we see throughout the scriptures or throughout his gospel. And so it is actually understood that this text is not a part of John's original manuscript, which is why it's, some in your Bibles, it might be italicized, or it might be in a, in a bracket, or there might be like a line, and then a little thing that says, may not be in the original manuscript, uh, right? Like, it will say that, because we see it's not, it's, it's, it's not in John's original manuscript. And so, We've got some awkwardness about this text, some tension about this text. And some might say that this actually is maybe a little bit more Luke-like. It might be a little bit more Matthew-like, um, but not quite John-like. So we've got some tension about why it's put there. Now, while this text is not a part of the original manuscript, it has some really significant historical um, what's the word? Validity. Okay, so it pops up in ancient, in ancient texts and in ancient writings a lot. We see this, maybe not in John's original manuscript, but we see it all over the place. So let me just sort of take you through a little bit of history here. So in Eastern manuscripts, we don't actually see this story popping up into uh, the biblical text until about the Byzantine era, era which is around the 9th century. Um, and even then, there's still markings about in the sort of the margins, like, this is not in the original, right? Like, they're making this comment about this, and that's in the Eastern texts. Now, this text has, is alive and well sort of in the Western world because we see that this text or a story about a woman who has been maliciously accused in front of Jesus about her sin, it's referenced by 
people like Ambrose, which is Ambrose Ziaster, and Augustine, and all of these early church fathers are around the 300s, 400s AD. And so we see that early on in church history, or in the early church, we've got this story cooking in the Western world, okay? Not so much in the Eastern, but a little bit but more so in the Western world. And then we're getting hints about this story even earlier than that. So there's a guy by the name of Eusebius, which, to be honest, I googled how to pronounce his name. So Eusebius, and then I have it written phonetically. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is the very first church historian. Okay, this is the very first church historian, and he tells in his writings how his teacher told him about a story about a woman who was accused in front of Jesus, but he refused to condemn her. And that comes from this guy by the name of Papias, who is the bishop of now modern Turkey, and that was around 60 to 100 AD. So it's got lots of roots in history, okay? So while it doesn't seem like it fits necessarily in John's original manuscript, this text has a great deal of history. So why include this text if it can't be nailed down? So this text, is it comes from the same pool of stories that the, um, that the gospel accounts come from. There, this text is from a typical synoptic like conflict story, which is where Jesus is placed in the crosshairs of a dilemma, and he stands up against the representatives of the law, but stands with the disenfranchised. And so it's from this like general pool of what the, th the things that Jesus did that other um, gospels are referring to. And since it's a typical Jesus conflict, why then would we place it, why would it be placed in John? So, it's about context because this particular conflict illustrates what John is teaching about Jesus in the next few verses. So, with John, sometimes what he does is he uses an account of Jesus and then Jesus explains himself a little bit later on. And so that's what's happening here in John, this this text has now been inserted into, into chapter 8 to make the point of something that Jesus is going to say a little bit later on. Are you tracking with me? Yeah, okay. So, there is a great deal of tension about this text. In fact, I just found this interesting that as I was doing research, one of the commentaries um, or one of the commentators in one of the books said, should we even preach from this text? Because there's this tension about where this text is coming from. But I'm going to preach from it. Okay? <laughs> so here we go. We've got this tension of this text. But it's evident throughout historical scholars. Now, the tension of the text uh, has to do with the topic. Okay? So the topic... Um, see, there in the very big, like in first century, there was this going on debate about the death penalty towards adultery. And so there's this debate about should, should people who commit adultery be killed? This is the debate. But with Jesus refusing to get involved in the legalism in this particular circumstance of sinners who are choosing to then judge other sins of other people, since Jesus is refusing in this text to, do, to be a part of the judgment, it then creates this tension between this debate and what Jesus does. So in fact, the text is sort of held back a little bit. And so then with this debate, so early on, like the, the list of Paul's sins like the, that Paul lists out, the sins that Paul lists out, those sins, including adultery, 
and immorality, the early church and the early church fathers, were creating and establishing some pretty severe penance. And by penance, I mean things that you do to gain righteousness. So they were creating penance of what you should do if you committed adultery. And so there were some church fathers and some early um, scholars who were so passionate about sexual sin that there was significant penance. And then some even thought that those who engaged in sexual sin, there was zero forgiveness. But this text suggests otherwise. Thus, there's significant tension. So there's this rising tension between the grace of Jesus and this expression of penance and how to live out righteousness. So it's against, actually, a great deal of history. It's against the second, third, and fourth centuries that this story of this woman being um, given extended mercy and grace to. It's this many centuries that it's sort of butting up against. And there's this great tension about what's being presented in church history and what this text suggests. And it isn't until about the fourth century with Constantine where we're now starting in this idea that like we should, the care for the soul and how bishops should care for the soul and that and that bishops were actually admonished for their lack of care and mercy. And so it, because that's happening in the 4th century, later on we finally get this movement of care and mercy that it's in the 5th century that this text, this, this story, this account is now inserted into, this, into Scripture. All because... This text is faced with sexual sin and grace. And it butts up against our, our drive to, to make things just so and our attempt to structure righteousness. And so here we have this text with a great deal of historical tension and confusion Really, we don't know what to do with this text. We don't know really how to organize it, right? Like, does it start at 53 or does it start at 1, right? Like, there's this, even some organizational things that we're a little bit uncomfortable about. It doesn't fit in our understanding of how things are supposed to be, which we'll explore a little bit further. But the beauty of this text and the beauty of the history is that it doesn't fit comfortably. It doesn't fit comfortably with us. It doesn't fit comfortably in this text. And there's a beauty in that because God uses the tension of this text to speak quite loudly. So, we try really hard, though, to avoid tensions, don't we? I really don't like tension, right? That's why I left the rock with the man at the security, like, x-ray thing. I don't want tension in our lives, right? Once we get that tension, that tense lump in our, in our chest and in our throat, we don't like that. We want things to be just so. We want to know what's right. We want to be right. And we don't like tension. And yet here in this text, there's a great deal of tension that exists. And it causes us to ask the question, Jesus what are you revealing in the tension? And that's the question that we lean into through this text. So let's take a look at the actual text. Now that we've got the tension of what is all about this text, let's actually get hop inside. Ready? All right. Okay, so Jesus has a bit of a rhythm um, in his final year of ministry, he's often teaching in the temples in the morning and then retreats back to the city, uh, from the city to the Mount of Olives. And so we have Jesus returning to the temple and the Mount of Olives, from the Mount of Olives to teach people, right? It's just sort of a regular occurrence for Jesus. He's coming back to teach. Now, on this particular day, 
Jesus was joined by two additional groups of people. There's a crowd, but two additional people, groups of people show up. There's the Pharisees and there's the teachers of the law. And these Pharisees and the teachers of the law know their scripture. They know their scripture. They know the law inside and out, backwards and forwards. They've been the ones that have actually been penning it so that they can get to the synagogues. They're the ones that have been teaching it. They're the ones that make sure that people are keeping it. They know the law. So these these two groups of people have a very strong theological understanding and practice. And they bring a woman and put her in front of a crowd and say, she has been caught in adultery. We've caught her. So, Jesus, are you going to keep the law? Or aren't you going to keep the law? What are we supposed to do here? And they put him on trial. And this is where the tension begins. Jesus was just teaching people. And now, once you start saying, you know, sex in like, you know, Faith people, ooh, there's tension, right? She had sex outside of marriage. What are you going to do, Jesus? Tension. And the teachers of the law make this charge, and they say, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, and this isn't just a tattletale situation, like, oh, we got her. Here we go, tattletale, tattletale. No. The Greek sentence structure of this statement is they are making a legal claim here that she has, that against this woman, she has actually been caught red-handed, like a murderer who would have been caught with blood on their hands. She has been caught red-handed in sin. Now, what evidence would they have for this legal claim? Well, let me tell you what the evidence would be. So the law requires two testimonies of two different witnesses of the sexual uh, encounter. And there would have to be, there would have to be um, either somebody laying in the same bed. There would have to be some sort of like unmistakable body movements. Mm -hmm. Or, and there'd have to be, <laughs> there would have to be a positive identification. There would have to be. So... Two witnesses have to see the same people doing the same thing at the same place at the same time. The likelihood, commentators say, that the likelihood for that kind of evidence to happen would have to be manipulated by the witnesses. It would have to be. That that kind of situation would probably be a trap. So, this woman, she's been caught in adultery. Now, there are numerous problems with that legal statement. There are three. Let's talk about them. Number one, the law expected that if a person witnesses another person about to commit a sin, that they are supposed to express compassion, so, and they are supposed to speak up first. The law commands them to warn the other person of the sin that they're about to step into. And the law compelled these people, they would have been compelled to intercede or intercept this issue. But these witnesses stood silently. They neglected their moral obligation to give guidance. And instead, they entrapped her. They caught her and they used her as bait. Now, the second issue is it has to be asked here, is this woman married? Is she engaged? Is she betrothed? What's the relationship status of this woman? In Deuteronomy chapter 22, it lists how the community is supposed to handle marriage violations. And a woman who is sexually unfaithful to her fiancé was supposed to be stoned as well as her lover. I just really wanted to say lover in chapel. Yeah. <laughs> so then, if she's a wife, an unfaithful wife likewise is to be killed, but, uh, but the law doesn't actually indicate exactly the method of death. But again, with their 
lover. <laughs> so this is what the Deuteronomy text says. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man uh, who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them out to the gate of the town and stone them to death. Harsh. Hello. Could you imagine? Can everyone just grab the rock for a second? Could you imagine what it would be like to hurl this at a person? This is what is being challenged. This is the law here. But notice that the law doesn't say it is the woman that needs to be stoned. It's both. There is equality in the distribution of the judgment of death. There's equality in that. It takes two to tango, right? And so here, the text talks about how it takes two. Two must be um, experienced that judgment. They must, which is harsh, right? Like, this causes us tension, yes? Is there tension in the room here? Yeah, there's tension. So, but where is the man here in this situation? Where is he? Who knows? Now, commentators identify that this is the most important cultural element in this story is that the accusation is made only for a woman. In first century Judaism, there was a stereotype that women were the instigators whenever there was a sexual sin, and they wrongly labeled them as lacking the spiritual or moral fiber needed to uphold the law. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law perpetuated that misunderstanding when they called that woman and said, she needs to be stoned. The law says that she needs to be stoned, which is partly correct, not fully correct. And so what they're doing is they're permitting, they're permitting the man to get away from, with the sin, and they're cherry-picking their judgments well, they're going to choose their judgments, what they would like to choose. They're going to choose to judge this woman, and they're going to not choose to judge the man. It's a, they're compelling, and they're creating, and they're stating a double standard. Now, three. These witnesses brought this woman before Jesus, before a crowd, and publicly shame her. They could have kept her aside. They could have had a, a small conversation with Jesus. But instead, their approach identifies that they're trying to trap Jesus. They're humiliating this woman to trap Jesus. They're creating tension. They're purposely creating tension to entrap Jesus so that he would make the judgment call. So here, we have these spiritual leaders who are completely neglecting their responsibility to care for the soul of this woman and the man. And instead, they hurl harsh judgments upon her in order to trap Jesus. This woman is disposable to them. She is a pawn. And their aim is to corner Jesus. She is like a theological, seriously, she's like a theological pawn, as if they're putting this pawn and saying, here, Jesus, checkmate. Ooh, I got your attention. Checkmate, Jesus. Checkmate. We've got you. Only, their checkmate is a blunder. Because he meets the heightened, their like heightened passion, their heightened brashness, right? Like I just imagine these witnesses coming in, huh, right? With all of this brashness, speeding into Jesus as he's teaching. 
And what does he do? He takes the tension and he just breaks it. And he drops down. And he starts to write on the ground. He totally breaks the tension. Perhaps he controls the tension. He begins to write with his hand. Now, it's impossible to know what Jesus writes here, right? Like, there's all kinds of theories as to what he writes. But because this is an issue of the law, it's most likely that he's responding with the law to this particular dilemma. So some would say that he's writing out some biblical texts. Some suggest that it might be Jeremiah 17, verse 13, that says, To those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the law, sorry, forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Others say that he writes Exodus 23, verse 1, that says, Do not help a wicked man by being malicious in witness. There's a law that is being. Um, it's, this is an issue of the law, and so Jesus is identifying by what he's writing that he is dis- dissatisfied with how the law is being used. And yet, he's st- he remains on the ground. But they want an answer, right? They're pushing for it. And so the men rush again. Well, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do? And they keep pressing him, it says in verse 7. They press him. They force him to to answer the question. The law says we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And so then Jesus responds with a well-known quote. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first one to throw the stone at her. Now, this statement does not mean that a person or an an accuser must be sinless in this moral, like, or morally perfect to actually cast the first stone, to bring this charge. In fact, Jesus, again, is referencing this this law in Deuteronomy in chapter 13 and in chapter 17. It talks about the witness who, or the accuser who witnesses the crime and who is successful in the accusation is to be the first person who throws the stone. And then everybody else follows suit. So he's saying, okay, you've made the accusation fine. Throw your stone. If you don't have any sin, throw the stone. And as he says this statement, what he's acknowledging is, when he, he's acknowledging that there's sin that has happened. He's acknowledging the sin. Okay, throw the stone. So he's not breaking it down and saying, well, actually, I don't know if, like, did she sin? Did she not? He doesn't break it down. He says, okay, he's acknowledging that there's sin. That there is a wrongdoing. And he's acknowledging that the sin is punishable by stoning. But by law, the accuser has to do it. And what they're looking for is a public lynching. That's what they're looking for. And he's pausing it. He's slowing it down because he's requiring some self-examination. If you are without sin, then throw the first stone. Checkmate. Are they sinless? No. They're not sinless at all. In this situation alone, they've likely entrapped this woman into adultery. They have not followed the actual law of how to deal with this situation. Uh, They haven't dealt with both the man and the woman. They've cherry-picked their their judgment, let alone their garden-variety sin, right? Because they're going to be doing their spiritual, their ritual cleansings. They're going to be their sin sacrificing, which is a part of their regular life as uh, faithful uh, Jewish men. So they're going to be a part of this cleansing process. So they are not without sin, And if they were to say that they, were, they had no sin, well, then they would be doing 
They would be elevating themselves to a place of blasphemy and they would be doing exactly what they're trying to trick Jesus. So they're caught. Checkmate. In placing the responsibility of judgment in the hands of those without sin, Jesus is cutting through the double standards here. Slicing it. And he's forcing them to recognize the hypocrisy in their own lives. All right, here you go. He's got them. So he could lecture them on how they misuse their authority. He could tell them how much they lack compassion. He could talk about the stillness of the water that is within their soul and how they have forgotten this spring of living water. He could say that there is darkness in their soul. He could tell them that they are whitewashed tombs. He could tell them that they are snakes. He could tell them they are fools. He could tell them they're hypocrites because he's called them that before. He could say all of that, but he doesn't. He says nothing. Instead, Jesus reveals grace and mercy, cutting the tension with his silence and expresses his grace and mercy and just simply continues to write. Here, is a moment of shared revelation. This is the cool thing about Jesus, is he reveals this massive thing of who he is, gracious, merciful, and there's two different lessons to be learned here. There's the lesson for the woman, and there's the lesson for the accusers. Proverbs 29 says that the poor man and the oppressor meet together, and the Lord gives light to their eyes, the eyes of both of them. See, Jesus cuts the tension of this conflict with his light. John 1, 4 and 5 says that in him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's cut the tension with his light, and he's brought light into this situation. And because he's brought light into this situation, the religious leaders drop their stone. And one by one, they walk away. From the oldest to the youngest, they walk away. Jesus is still stooped on the ground and has said nothing. And at the end of this awful, tense conflict. Jesus and the woman are left alone. The crowd isn't even there anymore. Could you imagine if you're the crowd in this situation? I would totally be like, get me out of here. This is so awkward. Um, even the crowd is gone. Nobody is there. It's just Jesus and this woman. It's wonderful. This is such a beautiful picture of all of these teachers just trailing off and the judgment just falls. And he says to the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now this term, woman, it's not a term that's cheeky. This is not with, you know, tone, woman. No, no. This is woman. This is the same name that when Jesus was called to fix the Welch's grape juice issue, when he needed to bring, when he needed to create water from wine, what does he call to his mom? He says to his mom, woman. He gives this woman the same title that he calls his mother, whom he loves. Woman. Where are they? Have they not condemned you? He shows her a sign of respect when she has been completely humiliated by her accusers, when she has been forced to stand and be gawked at by a crowd. He honors her, woman. He lifts her up, respects her. Has anybody condemned you? 
Now, his question does not imply that the woman is innocent. It's clear that she's broken the law. But Jesus offers her. Did they condemn you? It's this offering. It's this glimmer of hope that she's going to experience a fullness of his grace. But could you imagine the tension that still rests within her? Because he is a rabbi. He is an upholder of the law. He could still pass judgment on her. And yet, he's about to extend his fullness of grace and mercy to her. Because he has extracted her from this place of humiliation, and he frees her from condemnation when when he says to her, then neither do I then I don't condemn you either. Go now. Leave your life of sin. Jesus' lack of condemnation, again, it doesn't imply her innocence. What it does is it reflects his sovereignty to forgive her sin. It's all about who he is and how he reveals his grace and mercy to her. See, sin isn't treated lightly by Jesus. He offers sinners the opportunity to start a new life. See, the accusers, they wanted to end her life, but Jesus wanted to give her new life. They wanted to take her down, but he wanted to lift her up. And really, he is the only one. There is only one that was in the crowd that was sinless, and it was Jesus. And he didn't pick up a rock. But he defers. He defers his role, actually, in judgment. Because we see in John chapter 8, just a few verses after this story, it says, Jesus says, you judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. He defers. He can. He's God. He is God who is dwelling among us. And yet he defers to judge. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. What a picture. What a beautiful picture of Jesus dwelling with this woman. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory on one and the only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. This is grace. Releasing the woman from all condemnation. This is truth calling it sin and telling her not to do it again. And the conflict ends. Bam. It's done. We don't know how things go. And we're left. Well, what happens? What happens to these people? What happened to these women? There's tension. What happens? And we now need to grapple with what's going to happen. What do we do with this text? Like all the rest of the Christians that have gone before us, what do we do with this text? What do we do with this tension? Because the story forces us to ask troubling questions about what to do with people who are full of sin. Right? Shouldn't there be some sort of judgment somewhere? Is there all just grace? Well, that's chaos. Well, shouldn't there be some sort of reconciling of wrongdoing? Now, as as evangelicals, we're comfortable to take this story and turn it into a story about salvation, right? We're comfortable with that. Salvation is for everyone. There's grace for everyone, mercy for everyone. It's wonderful. Accusers, the woman, there's grace for us all. But what challenges us is when this when we try to live this out practically, on a real practical level. How will we live this text out? Will we do what Jesus does? Will we dwell like Jesus dwells? Will we live out Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, that says, instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Jesus Christ, has forgiven you? Will we live in the tension of seeking first God's righteousness while extending mercy that we've received to others? And will we live in the tension of the gospel? I'm going to get the band to come on up. See, the thing of it is, 
is the accusers. Jesus didn't tear them apart either. He didn't tear the woman apart because there's, there was sin present in either company. Jesus extended grace to both, and yet he could have judged both. And so this, this text calls us to ask the question, Jesus, what are you revealing in the tension of this text. Now, we tend to align ourselves with people that are in the text, so perhaps you're aligning tonight with the woman. Perhaps you're feeling humiliated in your sin. Perhaps you have felt condemnation before. And you actually need to hear Jesus tell you Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Maybe you need to remember what it says in John chapter 8, verses 34 to 35, where it says, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So the son has set you, to the son who has set you free, will be free indeed. You have not been condemned. You are free and free indeed. Perhaps tonight, you need to hear and you need to act on leaving your humiliation of your sin with Jesus and walking out of this room in the grace and the freedom and the mercy that is extended to you through Jesus Christ. So perhaps you align with the woman. Perhaps you align with the accusers. where we are in such hot pursuit of what is right that we have done wrong, that we have been hypocrites, that we have entrapped people to prove our point, that perhaps we have entrapped people and held their sin above them as a point of power, as a power move above them. Perhaps we have sinned in order to prove others are wrong and to prove ourselves right. Perhaps we have, aligned, we have lined up our condemnation of people like a weapon with our words, with our judgments, with our hearts. And we need to hear the voice of Jesus say, if any of you is without sin, cast the first stone. Tonight, Maybe you need to leave your condemnation with Jesus. Because he has grace for you too. He has grace for you to live in. Perhaps you need to remember John chapter 1 verse 12. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, have gave the right to become children of God. And see, children do what their father does does what their father commands and their father commands this love each other as I have loved you this text removes us from being the judge and the jury this, this text and the tension of this text calls us to do something with condemnation either to drop it and walk in grace receive grace and walk away from condemnation and so this is my challenge to you perhaps even hold on to your stone what do you need to do with the tension of this text today I'm going to ask you to stand and I'd love for you to reflect on this as we sing with the band and we're going to do something with this stone a little bit later on might I encourage you to let the Holy Spirit to speak. What do you do with the tension of this text for you personally?
Jesus comes and rescues us and brings us to a place of grace. No matter if we're the woman or the accuser. So what do we do with the condemnation that we hold? See, John 1, verse 15 and 16 talks about grace. God brings grace. When Jesus came to dwell among us, he brought grace, this unmerited grace. And he bestows grace on us. But there's condemnation in the world. So what do we do with it? It's not Jesus who's condemning us. Because he brings grace. He brings unmerited favor. Scripture tells us he brings freedom. And those who are freed by Christ are free indeed. So what do we do with the condemnation that we have? That we hold towards others or that we hold within? We have to drop it. We have to drop it. Like the stones that were left at the foot of the woman like the stones that were left at the foot of Jesus. We have to drop it. So who do you align with? Do you align with the woman? Do you feel humiliated in your sin? Well, like the, this story ends so abruptly, let me tell you, so can your sin end abruptly. By the grace of God, sin can end abruptly. And so if you are hanging on to sin in your life, that you're adding to the condemnation in your own life, that you're heaping that on yourself, can I encourage you tonight? Walk away. Drop the stone, literally, in prayer. Literally drop the stone at the end of each, at the beginning of the door, at the door. Drop your stone. Drop the condemnation that you carry in your heart because of the sin in your life. Drop it. Because he doesn't condemn you, but he does say, walk away from your sin. So drop it. Walk through the door and be free. So if you're aligning with the woman, take your stone. Drop, the, drop it in the bucket. Listen to the sound of the stone hit the other stones to remind you that your sin is dropped at the foot of Jesus. And then if you're aligning with the accuser, that you have judgment in your heart towards others, you've been condemning others in your heart, maybe not out loud, maybe you are out loud. Jesus calls you to a place of grace as well. Jesus calls me to a grace as well. To be honest, I'm going to be honest, this one lands a little bit more towards me than the other one feel a little bit convicted, to be honest with you. I need to put my condemnation at the foot of the cross. I need to drop the condemnation that I have in my heart, and I need to drop it. So let's drop it. Let's end it abruptly. Let's take a cue from this text, in the tension of this text, in the awkwardness of this text, and let's just drop it foot of the cross and let's listen to these rocks hit the pavement hit the rocks hit the bucket as we walk out of here walking in grace and walking in freedom can I pray for us can I encourage you put that rock in your hand hold your hands in a place of surrender offering to God and let's pray together Whatever it is that we're presenting to Jesus today, whatever we're dropping to Jesus today. Lord, I thank you. Jesus, I thank you for your unmerited grace. Jesus, I thank you that in your grace, you right wrongs. In your grace, you do not condemn. In your grace, you call us to live a life that is away from sin, but towards your righteousness. That's in your grace. That you call us to live a life of grace, not to live a life of condemnation. And so Jesus, whatever is represented in these stones tonight, whatever is represented by these extended hands tonight, God, would you end it? 
miraculously end it. End the condemnation of sin. In the name of Jesus, end it. In the, ne- end of, in the name of Jesus, would you end the judgment that stirs up within our hearts? Would you end it so that we would be people that know your grace, walk in your grace, know your freedom, and walk in your freedom? In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen. And so go. Drop your stone. And bless you. Let's live in the grace and freedom of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.